Fellas, what's going on? Welcome back to the show. Thank you as always for listening. We have a very special two-part series on everything heavy metals, minerals, and ionomics. Now, as you guys know, heavy metals and minerals have been a big focus of mine recently because of the impact they've had on my health personally. I have with me Clark Engelbert today, also known as Nutritional Analytics, and Clark is one of the most knowledgeable people I know regarding this space. He does an incredible job at giving us a crash course of minerals, how they affect our bodily functions, and how they interact with other things such as heavy metals. So as always, give this a listen. If you like it, please leave a review and make sure to join the Telegram where we have discussions about these podcast episodes and you guys can let me know what you want to see next. As I mentioned, this is part one of a two-part series, so make sure to watch both of them for the full picture. I hope you guys enjoy it as much as I did and let's get into it. Clark, welcome. Hey, what's up, Noah? Thanks for having me. Hey, yeah. So we were talking earlier about the main thing that people get wrong about minerals. I'm guilty of it and I think a lot of people are guilty of it. What is that thing? Like, what are we missing in the bigger picture? Yeah. So in the alternative health space, the biggest thing, and even in traditional medicine, the biggest thing that people are missing is that uh, minerals exist in a system inside of you. So just understanding this idea uh, leads to important implications, like all of these elements that we know of as essential elements interact with each other. So if you are considering what's going on with individual levels of certain minerals without considering their interactions, you're missing like maybe 70, 60% of the entire equation because these interactions can cause uh, higher low levels of other elements. You know, so it's, it's the most important thing to understand about minerals is that they exist in a system. And just this understanding is quite different than uh, a lot of like what nutritional sciences is based on. But this idea comes from a couple different places, but there's a, an entire entirely new field that's dedicated to the study of these interactions called ionomics. Um, and so uh, you may have heard of genomics or proteomics or metabolomics and stuff like that. But ionomics is essentially the study of the complete set of mineral nutrients and trace elements in an organism, including the heavy metals. And is this pretty new, ionomics? When did it start becoming an actual field of study? So um, ionomics started in soil science uh, back in like the 1960s and 70s. Um, <clears throat> so soil scientists started to figure out <clears throat> that in order to manipulate mineral levels in the, in the soil, you had to understand first that there were interactions between those elements, but then the specifics of those interactions. And so they were able actually in ionomics to to use this idea of these interactions to map certain genes across many different plant species. So, but this idea, um, there was a lot of really brilliant scientists that came along in like the seventies and eighties. Uh, number one was Dr. Paul Eck. And he took this idea of interactions that was, uh, that was being applied to like the plant kingdom and soil science. And he applied it to human beings and that he was a clinician but there have been several researchers and now an entire field called ionomics that has cropped up as a result of that, uh, that application uh, um, of the mineral interactions to human beings. So um, yeah, ionomics has been around in human beings for about 15 or 20 years. There's different names for it, uh, metalomics, ionomics, uh, but it's basically that study of the complete set of mineral nutrients, trace elements, and toxic elements as well. 
Gotcha. Yeah, you know, heavy metals and minerals in general have been so interesting to me because I consider myself someone who understand understood mainstream health, right? right? Like macronutrients, mi- micronutrients, but minerals were always just a like not a concern to me. They were similar to me that like cholesterol was when I was a teenager. It's like, right. why should I care? And I know, you know, back in the golden age of bodybuilding, there was a mineral emphasis. But other than that, like there wasn't much talk about it. Why is it that this field of ionomics and just the importance of minerals so delayed? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, It's kind of interesting. I would say uh, minerals are sort of like the stepchildren of nutrition. They're not (laughs) like we we sort of we discovered the essentiality of many of these elements in like the 50s, 60s and 70s. Um, And and a lot of what people consider exciting or whatever is based on like what's being newly discovered. Right. Mm. Um, And so there's a level of depth that doesn't exist when it comes to this conversation around minerals that I think should exist, where if you really pay attention to minerals and why they're important, um, you really begin to understand that essentially at the most basic level, at the atomic level, minerals are running your biochemistry. And so we can think about this in two different ways. And this gets right into this idea of why are minerals important? Um, Well, minerals run your biochemistry. That's number one. And there's two distinct ways to think about this. Minerals are pleiotropic. And that's to borrow a term from genetics, which means that minerals are used across every system, in every organ, in every cell in your body. And so to give a a concrete example of this, like zinc is used 2,700 different times and they're discovering new uses for it every day. Everyone knows magnesium is used 300 different times or for 300 different enzymes. Iron is used 200 different times, right? And so it's this pleiotropic concept that speaks to the diverse number of functions that minerals engage in and are used for in your body. And that's the that's where most of the conversation around minerals in the alternative health space revolves. But it gets a lot deeper. It gets a lot deeper. And we'll get into that. We'll get into that on this podcast. But, um, you know, if you think about what minerals are, um, they're simply different configurations of electrons and protons. So they're operating at this atomic level inside of you. Um, and so a lot of times we try to organize the body in this hierarchical structure where, uh, you know, what is at the bottom of this hierarchy? What is at the root of what's causing my health problems? And really at the root of this, you know, a lot of people think of DNA as sort of like the final boss in, in respect to that. But DNA is even made of something. DNA is made of nitrogen, four sugar molecules, and phosphorus, the essential element. So the hierarchy of what is running your biochemistry at the most foundational level starts at an even more elemental level. It starts with the minerals. And so those are two concepts, the atomic or quantum concept, the pleiotropic concept, which do begin to hint at the importance of minerals, but there's even more. Like uh, it's, it's been, it's a pretty well-established theory in metal toxicological circles that the blood brain barrier was evolved to regulate minerals in the brain. So a lot of people think of the blood brain barrier as sort of uh, this barrier that protects you against toxic, uh, you know, toxicological insults. And that's true that, but that's its secondary use. The first use was to regulate the homeostasis of minerals in your brain, which control your neurotransmitters. So 
the blood-brain barrier evolved to regulate minerals. That hints at like another sort of level of importance for these elements. But then it goes even deeper where certain evolutionary changes over the last many millions of years have occurred as a result of minerals. To give a couple examples, boron um, helped uh, like plants needed leaves and stems as they came out of the oceans. Um, and so boron was actually the reason why plants uh, evolved and, and had those leaves and stems over time. Um, we developed warm bloodedness, human beings um, and a few other species as we came out of the ocean because of iodine. Our night vision was enhanced over many, many millennia because of zinc in the eye. So, um, you know, there's a lot of different reasons. Uh, a lot of this is in the literature, but it's like, why is this not as important as I say it is and maybe some other people? Um, I think a lot of it has to come down to people don't know how to use minerals to set up healing programs. So they'll take random stuff, but they don't notice a difference. And that comes back to this idea or notion of in order to use these elements and nutrients more broadly, in order to use them to get huge results and reversals of conditions, you have to know how those elements interact because you can take stuff that might make existing imbalances worse. And you're, you're not using the elements with, uh, with this notion of zinc lowers sodium or manganese raises sodium or copper raises calcium, right? You can inadvertently create new imbalances, but you won't balance things that you need to if you don't understand the interactions piece. But that's where, um, you know, there are a lot of people talking about minerals now, um, myself included. And I think the, the final missing piece for people is going to be these interactions and how do we actually use these elements in practice to get results. Gotcha. Interesting. And yeah, you know, as I've dug deeper into this whole ionomics field, the one thing that I keep on coming back to is like, man, like I just, I can't win in, in terms of trying to address mineral imbalances right. because this mineral might affect another mineral. There's other things that may impede my body's natural ability to absorb certain minerals right. and increase the absorption of other minerals. Is like, how does one go about trying to understand their mineral status and maybe areas of improvement? Because it, from what you're saying about their pleiotropic nature, it's pretty difficult to assess mineral deficiencies from a symptom standpoint. Yes, there, it's difficult. Um, and that's definitely never the way to do it. Obviously, certain uh, overt uh, deficiencies that are bad will, you know, you'll present with symptoms. But um, there can be a lot of things causing that. Um, so the best way, in my opinion, to measure your mineral status is through the use of a hair tissue mineral analysis. Um, and there are certain reasons why this is true. Um, the first of which is that the hair is a biopsy tissue. So you can think of hair as sort of like an extension of your skin, where the skin is an active biological organ that is doing a lot of different things. It has a lot of different functions that it is uh, required to carry out. Right. And so to that end, the hair is an extension of the skin and, and it exists in the first place to do a lot of the same things that the skin is doing. So <clears throat> with that understanding in mind, we can understand the hair as a biopsy tissue. It's an active biological organ, essentially. Um, and so for that reason, we can get a reading of the minerals <clears throat> in your hair. 
And that serves as a cellular reading of the minerals. And so the fact that the hair is a cellular reading or biopsy reading of the minerals is a big advantage over a lot of traditional like medical testing, like blood testing uh, and urine testing, where like with blood, um, you're really only measuring about 24 to 48 hours from when that sample is taken of your minerals and other elements that you can measure in your blood, like hormones. But the hair, because of the nature of hair growth, it grows slowly over time, right? So you can get about a three to four month average of what's going on inside the cells of your hair, depending upon the length of hair that you cut. So, so grow the hair out for sure. If you're looking to get a conclusive yeah. HTMA. Exactly, exactly. But, but the idea is that hair is the best, it's non-invasive. Like you don't have to take a needle and stick it into your liver and get a liver biopsy. That would be sort of a, uh, um, an, an equivalent test, right? So all you have to do is take a snip of hair um, and you're getting a cellular reading of the minerals, but you're getting a reading of those minerals uh, over time, about a three to four month average. So conditions, symptoms, and diseases develop over time. Um, especially, you know, modern chronic conditions are all, uh, you know, it takes time to develop. Like, you know, Sally in West Virginia didn't end up with cancer one day and the day before she didn't have it. It was taking years and decades oftentimes to develop. So the hair is a long-term reading of what's going on with your minerals. So that's a huge advantage, uh, the cellular reading. But then also with the hair, this is also important, I think, to, to talk about, but a lot of people confuse hair analysis for saying like the hair is a, it's not a reading of like your total body status of a given mineral. No one ever said it was. It's more of an early indicator of what's going on inside your body than it is anything else. So there doesn't exist a single test that can measure the total body load of any mineral. And it would almost be, it wouldn't even be that useful of a test because unless you could discriminate where each mineral was, then it wouldn't really matter that much, the total body load. But um, but the hair serves as sort of like an early indication of deficiencies, imbalances, and mineral ratios, and then certainly hormonal status as well. That's another really cool aspect of the test is that you can kind of use it like a complete hormone panel um, because many of the hormones regulate mineral retention in your tissues. So like aldosterone regulates sodium, um, cortisol regulates potassium. Um, and then when we get into mineral ratios, you can basically use certain mineral ratios to assess the cellular effect of like thyroid hormone, adrenal hormones, insulin, and maybe get a rough uh, measure of what's going on with like your estrogen and or testosterone as well. Okay, interesting. So that's what I've heard a lot in terms of all types of analysis is none of them are truly conclusive, but it sounds like the hair tissue mineral analysis is the most conclusive. Yes. And the thing about it as well is that it's measuring the entire mineral system all at one time, okay. which goes back to that system uh, or that system concept or idea where if you're getting a blood test, yes, you can measure many of the minerals, maybe not all of them. Urine testing sometimes will do some of the minerals. Sometimes it will just do individual ones. But you're also getting a reading of the heavy metals as well with the hair test, another big advantage. Um, but when you know how those interactions play out, you can use certain aspects of the test to assess metal toxicity aside from just looking at the metal levels themselves. So there's this piece of like the testing modality that you use, but then also the 
uh, way in which you're interpreting the test, which the way in which we interpret this hair test is very, very different than what a lot of other people are doing in this space. What are they doing wrong or differently that you think could be improved? Um, a lot of it has to come back to or do with um, the way in which they're assessing just the individual mineral levels. So they're not paying attention to the mineral ratios. They're not paying attention to the combinations of ratios that can form and actually make patterns of minerals, uh, which are very useful to establish and understand psychological phenomena as well. So it comes back to this idea of most people who use this test, they use it to look at individual levels of minerals. Um, is calcium lo low or high and so on and so forth. And then they look at the metals individually as well, where we don't look at it that way at all. Gotcha. And, you know, talking about, you know, the neurological and psychological aspect, the yeah. part about minerals and heavy metals that really interested me is how many anecdotes and personal stories there were about people struggling with, you know, mental health issues, right? Just overcome with depression, just this feeling of horrible pessimism that wouldn't go away. And oftentimes that was linked back to maybe a mineral imbalance or heavy metal overload. Yeah. Why is it that, you know, minerals in particular have such a big factor in terms of overall mental health and neurological issues? Like we know that this happens with certain, you know, like B vitamin deficiencies and even fat soluble vitamins, but it seems like minerals are particularly potent at interfering with your, your normal cognitive functioning. Yeah. So what this really comes down to is that minerals in the brain are used to regulate neurotransmitters. Um, and to give a couple specific examples, maybe we can start with the metals. Um, like, or talk about like the minerals and metals and their relationship in the brain, but like calcium is used uh, to mediate certain enzymes that control acetylcholine namely uh, protein kinase C and calmodulin. Um, okay, so if you have imbalances in calcium in the brain, too low, too high imbalances with other uh, minerals, uh, this can impair these enzymes that are calcium dependent. And to give an example of what happens is, is that lead can replace calcium directly in the brain. And when this occurs, it basically thwarts a lot of the enzyme efficiency that uh, calmodulin and protein kinase C are necessarily used for. And so those enzymes, which are regulating acetylcholine has downstream effects on acetylcholine. So that substitution that takes place between lead and calcium affects these enzymes, which regulate acetylcholine. Acetylcholine then is your main focus neurotransmitter. So you can't focus, um, if you have this substitution going on and it's also linked to, um, like uh, behavioral, like violence and stuff, oftentimes lead is associated with, um, but but your your ability to focus is going to be impaired dramatically just by virtue of that one substitution that takes place. And, and you can think of the minerals in some way, like calcium, magnesium, and zinc as the sedative minerals in your brain. They help to keep you calm under stress. Zinc is used, uh, it's very important for glucocorticoid signaling, which starts in the brain. Um, uh, cortisol, uh, corticosterone, those hormones, but zinc is also a GABA agonist. So your brain's main, uh, calming neurotransmitter is, uh, regulated to some degree by zinc. So you will have, uh, these issues related to behavior problems, violence, potentially, um, and other problems as well. Like another really good example of, let's say copper in the brain, 
would be everyone knows of copper as sort of like uh, this good conductor of electricity. And it's used in like the wiring in people's homes for that reason. But that's also true when copper builds up in your brain. So if copper is unregulated for whatever reason in the brain, it will have the same effect if it builds up beyond a certain concentration threshold. And it will make your neurotransmitters, especially dopamine, norepinephrine, and a few others fire much more rapidly. And that can lead to conditions like schizophrenia in extreme cases, but overthinking, anxiety, and depression are very commonly associated with copper toxicity. Gotcha. Yeah, that's interesting because I've been doing a little bit of research um, about, you know, like anhedonia. There seems to be a lot of people recently that for some reason or another have had this extreme emotional blunting, inability to feel certain pleasures. And it seems like a lot of that has tied back to copper toxicity. Yes. I, I guess, you know, how does that occur? Because, you know, when I'm thinking it's like, man, like I'm loading up on zinc. We know that, you know, zinc has the potential to deplete copper. Like, why do we think that this is becoming a pervasive thing? with copper in particular. And, you know, is there a correlation like with, you know, like, should you avoid copper supplementation and copper rich foods if you think that you may have copper toxicity or is it not as direct of a correlation? Yeah, I'll answer the second question first. Um, it gets kind of complicated because in copper toxicity and toxicity of the other elements, you can have biounavailable copper, toxic copper in the wrong places. So you still have a need for bioavailable copper in the, in the supplementation regime. But we assess the need for copper uh, by looking at calcium and magnesium and sodium and potassium. So we don't look at the copper level directly, but we try to understand how copper affects these other elements first when assessing, like, should you take copper or should you take zinc? Should you take them together? Um, but with anhedonia, this is a really interesting uh, point you bring up about copper and its relationship to this condition, copper is a calcium synergist. So when it builds up in your body beyond a certain concentration threshold, it can cause an elevation in calcium. And this has very profound implications for anhedonia and people who can't feel anything because if calcium builds up in your body uh, beyond a certain concentration threshold in the wrong places, it can make you numb in the same way that calcium is used to buffer you against stress and its benefit there is very profound, if it builds up beyond a certain concentration threshold, then it can make you numb and it can make you feel, you can't feel anything. Um, but another really interesting element is involved with that as well, manganese. Um, toxic manganese um, can make people sort of flat, um, not as numb as calcium, but just sort of a flat, um, kind of mildly irritated personality. But this sort of, this whole idea speaks to this concept, which is called the anthropomorphic quality of minerals, which basically states that each of these elements, they have certain characteristics or qualities about them. And those qualities are imbued onto you and your personality, your thinking process, uh, your thoughts, um, when those elements sort of build up inside of you. Yeah, it's so interesting because, you know, I, I think about that a lot. It's like, you know, like, what is our personality? Like, why are people the way they are? Like, are they that way or is it something to do with their biology? And a lot of times I bring that down to like neurotransmitter dominance, right? And a lot of that comes down to like what we're mentioning here with minerals, but also with amino acids. So, you know, I think going back to what we were talking about before, where it's like, 
cool, like copper toxicity, you know, the, the reason that it may be causing problems is not because of the copper in particular, but because of its effect on calcium. How does that correlate with like dietary calcium, right? You know, you yeah. said there is a difference. You may need uh, calcium for other biological functions, but not localized toxicity. Right. So with, um, with the relationship between copper and calcium, if it does, this is also another big mistake that people make um, when analyzing hair tests, when they see very high levels of like, say, let's say copper or manganese or calcium, any of the elements, they assume automatically it means you need to avoid those elements. But our interpretation of the test says that those elements are precipitating out into the hair more rapidly than they should when they need to be used in the body in certain places. Calcium, like 99% of your body's calcium reservoirs are in your bones. So when we see like high levels of calcium on a hair test, those people still need calcium in their diet. We don't avoid giving them calcium supplements, but calcification, which is another big uh, sort of buzzword and thing I, I think people misunderstand, is regulated. Uh, it's influenced by copper. It's influenced by the heavy metals, which can replace calcium. But it's also influenced by thyroid hormone, adrenal hormones, and uh, parathyroid hormones. So a lot of people are out there saying, you know, vitamin D is going to lead to calcification, right? But actually vitamin D uh, status, calcification can occur when people have very poor vitamin D status. So, you know, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But, you know, when it comes to supplementing, our approach is to focus on not only the interactions, but really with special emphasis at looking at the first four elements, which are calcium, magnesium, sodium, and potassium and understanding the ratios thereof of those elements and how all the other elements interact. And our approach is to balance those first four elements first with the understanding of the interactions. And usually the trace elements come into balance as a result of balancing those first four elements. Okay. On a tissue test, not on like a blood test. Gotcha. So is there anything, I guess, first and foremost, like, why do we think this has become a particularly new and nuanced issue? Why do we, why are so many people struggling with mineral imbalances? What are the, the underlying causes? Is it environmental toxins? Is it dietary? Is it behavior based? I'm sure it's a it's a combination. But if you could just give a general overview, like, why is this an issue to begin with? Yeah, the first and probably most important thing is that the food has been denatured over the last 100 years, dramatically so. So the, the food is uh, much more nutrient poor. So, you know, there's all sorts of really interesting research on uh, looking at the nutrient content of the soils in the last hundred years. And it's uh, very, very poor. Um, you know, anything from calcium to iron to copper to zinc, all of the essential elements, a lot of the nutrients are just very uh, sparse in modern foods. So this is a... This is the main thing that's driving it. There's other things involved. Heavy metals are more ubiquitously used now um, because of industrialization than they have at any time in history. And to understand nutrients is one thing, but to understand the interaction between the metals and the minerals is quite another. It's sort of like a double insult where the nutrient levels are very poor. The heavy metals antagonize those, uh, all of the essential elements, basically. So you have sort of a perfect storm for a lot of different things to go wrong because these essential elements, which we need to run your biochemistry are very low. Heavy metals are very high in the environment 
There's no escaping them. I talked about this on Wendy Myers podcast with Matt Blackburn as well. Um, metals are used. They, people really don't understand how metals are used in industry. It's sort of insane. Um, just to drive home or, or highlight this point, um, there's research done in like very remote locations around the world, uh, looking at metal deposition in snow and soil samples uh, in like Antarctica and Greenland and like 20,000 feet up on Everest. All of these snow and soil samples of these remote locations are loaded with like cadmium and arsenic and lead, you know, so even in uh, remote locations, you're getting um, you're getting doses of heavy metals. And so the metals antagonize the minerals. That's a really another important way that it's sort of lowering or perturbing mineral homeostasis in your body. So but then stress, I would say, um, is a big uh, driver of mineral depletion. All of the stress hormones can burn through your essential elements. So gotcha. that's from what I understand from your last discussion with Wendy is that, you know, this idea of ionic mimicry, when you are depleted of certain minerals, it makes your body more susceptible to soaking up, so to speak, a lot of these heavy metals that are in your environment. Yes. You bioaccumulate the heavy metals much more readily in the face of mineral deficiencies. And so Couple things to say about this concept, ionic mimicry. The first is that it's important to understand that metals have no known function in the body. So the body, there's no regulatory mechanisms to control their intake and partitioning. So metals, when they build up inside of you, have to find some way to gain access to cellular compartments. They do so through these different ion channels and transporters. And this happens because many of the metals have similar chemical characteristics as the minerals uh, and specifically like uh, certain valency states, but then ionic radii or sizes of these elements can be very similar. And so this is one of the ways in which that uh, metals can use these ion channels and transporters to gain access to the cells. When that happens, the metals are actually substituting for these essential elements and doing the jobs that they are doing. So when you have low zinc and let's say cadmium or mercury, you're exposed to it. Those two elements will gain access to cellular compartments through zinc importers or transporters in the gut and in other places. But then mercury and cadmium specifically can be used to run certain enzymatic and biological processes that zinc is required for. And a perfect example of this is metallothionine, which is a metal binding protein that zinc, it, it's uh, activated in the presence of zinc, but that protein will run at some lower level when you have those metals running them. That's a very important idea. The implications of this are critical because if you understand this, it makes you way less uh, apt to go down this chelation route of trying to chelate metals out because if you're trying to chelate metals, well, those metals are actually being used to keep you alive as sort of an adaptive mechanism, right? So if you chelate out metals using, you know, synthetic or even natural chelating agents without understanding the mineral balance in the first place, you can really hurt somebody um, doing that and going down that road. But um, so that's one thing to keep in mind. But when it comes to like the mechanism of heavy metal bioaccumulation, uh, to give some specifics on this, this is really interesting. Um, there's certain metallomic studies that look at this, um, in the gut, basically, um, when you are deficient in zinc, 
your body has these uh, absorptive molecules called zinc importers and transporters in your gut that are responsible for absorbing zinc from your food. Those importers and those transporters will be upregulated up massively uh, in, the, in the face of zinc deficiency to try and extract more zinc from food when you're eating it in that zinc deficient state. But it is that upregulation in the presence of the metals as well that causes more heavy metal uh, bioaccumulation. So it's, it's happening in the digestive tract in that manner. Um, you know, but that is just, uh, in my opinion, that's fascinating. It really is. And it's also devastating because you're like, man, that just makes a whole nother level of complexity to this very difficult puzzle. Right. So in my mind, the first line of defense is like, how can I avoid exposure to heavy metals? Yep. Yep. Right. Are yep. there tactical things that people can do that will help them, you know, kind of reduce that exposure and that absorption? Or, or what are the main sources of exposure that you see that could be easily avoidable? Number one is processed food. By far and away, that's something that everyone controls. You know, you can't control the mercury or lead in the air being spewed by, you know, smoke stacks from China, right? We can't control that. So you want to try and focus on what you can control, which is your diet is the first and most important line of defense against metal toxicity. Um, now, common exposure vectors in your everyday life, um, aluminum is probably the most ubiquitous. But part of why I say avoid processed food as well is because like nickel and mercury and aluminum are used in various uh, or for various reasons in processed food. So also there's a lot of interesting research that came out recently on lead and cadmium and chocolate. So, yes, you know, which kind of sucks for people. <laughs> I get that. I know. I deal with that on a daily basis with my clients, you know. So um, but like nickel is used in the hydrogenation process for trans fats. Mm. Oh, yeah. Seed oils are bad because the omega-6s are not good, right? But the seed oil supremacists out there miss something, which is that nickel, you're getting a dose of nickel every time you eat those seed oils. Um, so that's a really important exposure vector. Uh, this is something that I learned about six months ago, maybe six or eight months ago. High fructose corn syrup since the 60s was synthesized or made in these plants called chloralkali plants. And mercury is found in these plants. And so through the processing of high fructose corn syrup, you're getting mercury toxicity. So anything with high fructose corn syrup, um, soda, most obvious one, uh, ketchup, or uh, you know all of these different prepared food products, um, you're getting a dose of mercury. And that, in my opinion, is the most important exposure vector for mercury, even more important than vaccines or uh, you know, like amalgam fillings, right? Uh, you know, so avoiding those processed foods, really important, but also with aluminum, let's say, to give an example there, aluminum is used in the water supply as an antifungal agent. So <laughs> this is sort of messed up. Tap water, you want to avoid like the plague. Um, but also any prepared foods that are made with water, from that tap water. So like breads, cookies, cakes, right? Any of that sort of food that's prepared, you're getting a dose of aluminum and nickel and potentially mercury. I know. Man, 
I didn't even think about that. Right? Yeah. So like, cool, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to boil my rice in filtered water, but the stuff I'm buying from the store, like that uses water as well. Yeah. How high up on your list of avoidance is fish, particularly large fish that bioaccumulate like tuna. Um, is that as much of a concern as say high fructose corn syrup? It is. It is. Unfortunately, fish maybe a hundred years ago was a phenomenal food and there's still really good aspects of uh, fish, you know, the omega-3s, selenium, certainly, but um, I only recommend to my clients small fish like sardines. Those are safer, but the bigger fish are tend to just, since they exist for longer in the ocean, they have more time to bioaccumulate heavy metals. Sort of a similar concept with human beings. The older you get, the more you're likely to have a higher metal burden just by virtue of living in the world. Yeah, man. You know, first of all, that sucks. I know. <laughs> Sushi is awesome. I know. You know. Someone sent me online because uh, I was talking about that as well. And we understand that maybe selenium and potentially chromium as well may inhibit some of that mercury absorption. But I assume it's not nearly enough to balance it out. It's not. And I did a post on this a while ago where traditionally researchers did think that selenium uh, would protect you against any sort of mercury toxicity. But it's a little more complicated where the relationship isn't just one way where selenium is protecting you against mercury. Mercury can actually deplete selenium. So depending upon your current selenium mercury status, if even if like you have a one-to-one -one ratio of selenium to mercury in that fish, um, if that status of selenium and mercury is already poor, that can influence how much you will bioaccumulate of the mercury from the fish, uh, just because mercury can lower selenium as well. So, but also with mercury and selenium, this is also another important point. Um, the metals substitute for many of the different elements, many of the essential elements. So mercury isn't just substituting for selenium, though it can. Mercury is substituting for calcium, for zinc, uh, and maybe potentially other elements, uh, nickel, um, and maybe some other ones as well. There you have it, fellas. That is episode one. If you're wondering why it was such an abrupt ending, that was because my Wi-Fi went out. The joys of living in Mexico. But anyway, I'll have part two up shortly. Let me know what you guys think. As always, make sure to like, subscribe, follow. Check me out on Twitter. Check Clark out on Instagram. Clark's been killing it. And I will see you guys soon. Peace.